Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined in this new year by my co-host and co-pilot of Liftoff, Jason Snell. Stephen, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I, I'm Yay. celebrating with a cold, so forgive me for sounding the way I sound. Tis the season, the cold and flu season. <laughs> it it that is. is. Definitely the flu mm-hmm. season. Uh, that's actually why we're a day late this week, because as terrible as I sound today, yesterday was even worse. <laughs> so Yeah, you should have not heard him yesterday. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not good. Not good. Uh, I'm excited to be back. There's some news we're going to talk about. We're going to do some media review stuff, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to talk about Apollo test flight and hardware. Gearing up for what we spoke about last time, we're going to do the crewed Apollo missions on, or as close as we can get, to their 50th anniversaries. So we're a little behind. Right. We're going to talk about Apollo 1 uh, next episode. So this this week in like uh, the crewed spacecraft history segment, we're going to just kind of clear the decks for of Apollo hardware and test flights. So lots to talk about today. But we should start at the Cape, where SpaceX has lifted and uh, shown off the Falcon Heavy upright for the first time at launch pad 39A. Uh, they lifted it up over right after Christmas, around the 28th or the 29th of December, clearly just testing of the strong back and all the fittings and everything at the pad. Uh, as of this recording, there has not been a test, for, uh, a static fire yet. That's expected really any time. Uh, SpaceX should probably give people some warning of that a couple of days in advance. We haven't heard anything. But uh, this seems to be happening. This is a huge step uh, towards f- finally seeing Falcon Heavy uh, fly. Yeah. Now, I want to keep this podcast family friendly, but I do have to say oh, no. that some of the pictures of the rocket as it was being cranked up oh, oh into its position oh, the ones God. that people were were out were tweeting out i was like guys no don't no because it's it's too i mean i'm not a believer in in rockets being symbols for other things usually but hmm. it was not good gonna... anyway what i'm saying what i'm saying is i'm very happy that the falcon heavy is up right now <laughs> attached to its gantries and uh at the at the tower it's good yeah it's good. I don't need to see any more time-lapse videos, ever. <laughs> ever. If you remember from us discussing it before, the Falcon Heavy is made up of three Falcon 9s. The outer two, so kind of right and left, have both been flown before. The center one is a new booster. Uh, so we got 27 first-stage engines all together across those three stages. We're going to see that static fire at some point of all 27. The Falcon Heavy, uh, they're not going to run it at full tilt quite yet. They're going to throttle at about 92% of full power. That's still, mind you, 4.7 million pounds of thrust at launch, which is uh, is puts this rocket into the history books as far as horsepower. Yeah, it is... Um what is it, two or three times more lift capacity than um, any other rocket currently uh, yes. in, in operation can uh, can do. So it's 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 good. It's it's real good. It's not, you know, they've got the BFR coming, which is the, you know, that's the, hey, let's make a Saturn V. But this is still, um, this is a this is a big, big rocket. So th- there's a lot of things you can do with Falcon Heavy. And we talked about that, you know, this is, this has potential for space probe stuff too, where you can go direct to Jupiter instead of spending three years uh, ping ponging around the solar system in order to get to Jupiter. There, you know, you can go um, much more readily with more equipment to Mars because you can you can lift more stuff. There's lots of good things about this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we spoke about this. There was that crazy story that Musk was telling some people that. Uh, atop the rocket in the fairing was going to be a Tesla Roadster. He told other people that that was a joke. Turns out, I guess I'll believe it when it finally happens, but it seems like that's exactly what's happening. There uh, there have been photos of Tesla Roadster atop the Falcon Heavy within the fairing. Um, it looks hilariously small because that fairing is, that, that space is actually pretty large up there to be able to, to put put satellites and, and whatnot into orbit. But um, 
Yeah, there seems to be uh, a convertible up there, but not everyone's a fan. Right? Like, I kind of find it funny, and I, I completely understand. We're going to talk about this, too, a little bit in our Apollo conversation. You need ballast. You need something at the top of the rocket to move. Sure. Uh, and I totally understand they don't want to put a customer satellite. This is the first launch of this thing. Uh, I mean, it's probably I, a, a, a... I saw Musk <laughs> say that he thought... I mean, and Musk says a lot of things, and we can't gauge whether he's serious or not. But, I mean, he, he was trying to play the diminished expectations game with this one, which where he was like, I don't know, it, it's, you know... It's probably not going to make it. I, I mean, I, I remember he said something about it was a quoting a low percentage chance of success with the first mission, yeah. right? So he's trying to underplay it. This is like when they always said, "Oh, these are experimental landings of the first stage." You know, don't don't right. get too excited if it fails. Failure happens in this sort of thing. Well, he's playing that game here, but at the same time, there were people I saw um, scientists, especially planetary scientists, on Twitter saying it seems kind of wasteful. Because what if you succeed? You've succeeded at launching nothing. And wouldn't it be better to try to launch something and try to launch it somewhere? Because the other thing about this is I've seen a lot of stories that talk about how this thing is going past Mars or it's going into a, an elliptical Mars or better things like that. And that's not really true. It's in what's called a uh, transfer trajectory, which means that basically it will have an elliptical orbit where at its furthermost point, it's basically around the the um, the area Mars orbits in, and at its right. closest to to the sun, it will be in the path of Earth's orbit. But that's not the same as going around Mars and back to Earth because it it's not doing that. It's not actually even timed for one of the launch windows to Mars. So some of the criticism here is if they wanted to test this and it's so powerful and they're going to put it in this in this orbit, maybe they should have put something in it that would be useful. Is there some, uh, some and, and maybe not. Maybe the answer is there's no way that you could have even a quick uh, space probe of some sort that you could stick on it. But um, if this had been planned a little bit better... Um, would you not take the opportunity to put something there? And would you also not try to time it to actually put it um, around Mars? And neither of those happened. So, um, you know, I think from SpaceX's perspective, and this is perfectly fair, it's like their goal is just to get it tested and launched and they don't really yeah. care where it goes or what it's carrying essentially and that and that stuff is going to slow them down and what they want to do is finally get this thing launched because then they can start innovating about it and so i see i see both sides i like i get if you're somebody who's frustrated by the lack of access to space for missions and you look at this and you're like they are they have a rocket capable of going to mars that they're just going to shoot off into nowhere with nothing i get the frustration there but at the same time i i see the that practically speaking, uh, it, it's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine them them wanting to do this. They they want to get on with launching this thing as quickly as they can, uh, given all their delays, so that they can you know either have it fail and learn from that, or have it succeed and realize that they're uh, that they're doing well and they can move on. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think I think there's points on both sides, and uh, you know if someone were to put something of value atop that rocket and something happened, then you're sort of in the, the, the worst case, right? You spend a bunch of money on time on something that didn't go anywhere. So I get it, you know, either way, it should be uh, an exciting January. Uh, I think that uh, they've, they're going to get this off the ground this month and uh, we will definitely keep an eye on it because it's, it's a big step forward, not only for SpaceX, but for, like you said, you know, this puts, um, this puts Mars and puts other destinations in reach in a way that they haven't been. And uh, so it's an important step. And I think I think if the Falcon Heavy is a successful vehicle for them, that we're going to see all sorts of stuff possible because of it. And uh, and that's that's a good thing. You know, whether or not this first one is kind of jokey or not, overall, I think it's hard to argue that this is not an important step. Yeah. So do you want to keep, uh, keep us updated with the new Frontiers competition? What's going on I, here? I do. The new Frontiers is this um, NASA program where they kind of do a bake-off of different potential planetary missions. These are the kind of mid-priced. These aren't the cheap missions, nor are these the super flagship expensive missions. These are in the middle. Uh, new Horizons was a New Frontiers mission. Juno is a New Frontiers mission. I mean, New Horizons is present tense, too. Uh, Osiris Rex, 
uh, to an asteroid. That's a New Horizons mission. So New Frontiers, New Horizons, that's confusing. Anyway, th- those are all these mid-price missions. So um, it's going to be about $850 million for spacecraft instruments and mission operation, uh, then the launch price. So it would be a, these are billion-dollar space missions. These are nothing to sneeze at, but they, at the same time, they are mid-priced. They are not like Cassini, uh, which was a uh, high-priced kind of thing. Um so they did the they 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 got down to the finalists uh, from the semifinalists, and they picked two finalists that get four million bucks and a year to continue to flesh out their ideas. And then I would say they'll pick a winner, but I think the truth, given NASA's history in the past, is they will either pick a winner or they will pick both of them as winners and stagger them and not do another competition for a longer period. That seems to be an option for them that they've taken in the past. So the two winners that get the $4 million in a year to flesh out their their ideas, and theoretically at least one of these will end up being a real mission um, that will launch by no later than 2025, which seems like the far future, and I will point out, is seven years from now. So, <laughs> um, yeah, the Comet Astrobiology Exploration Sample Return, and if that sounds like a mouthful, it's a backronym. They wanted to make it CSER, which is what it is. CSER's primary investigator is Steve Squires, who was involved in the um, early Mars uh, lander uh, and rover. Uh, if you remember the, uh, the, the skateboard on Mars in the 90s, uh, that was Steve Squires. And uh, it's a team at, I think, Cornell. And um, this is was a, mis- a mysterious, somewhat mysterious team. Like, I read a profile of all of the possible ones before the finalists were picked. And one of the stories was basically like, and then there's Caesar, which stands for Comet Return, and, we don't, and it's Steve Squires, and we don't know anything more about it. Well, we know more now. Uh, but basically, Caesar would go to the same comet as uh, the Rosetta probe has, uh, has hung around oh, nice. at. So it's a comet we already know, and it's accessible for us. And But it's a sample return. So it would actually take a piece of the comet and return it to Earth. And this is a big deal because, as we know, we've talked about before, one of the challenges with a lot of space exploration is you can bring instruments to outer space. But the cost to get materials back is... Um, Okay, I'll say it. Astronomically oh, higher. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's the right word to use here because you you aren't just flying there then. You're flying there and stopping and grabbing something and putting it safe somewhere. And then you're flying back to Earth and then you're getting that thing to the ground. It's like it's way harder to do, takes a lot longer. And um, as a result, we don't have a lot of samples from uh, objects in space, we've got stuff from the moon that the astronauts brought back. I think there, I think we've had a couple comet returns with like little uh, sparkles from the tail of a comet before, yeah. but this is like a big chunk, and that's what Caesar would do. Um, so, and Steve Squires says this would be decades of research for scientists back on Earth to have actual comet um, comet material to study. Um, the downside of Caesar is that it takes a long time to get to sample and return from a comet. So the scientists who would be studying the sample return um, are babies now because the sample return won't come back until 2038. Which, as an old person, bums me out because I'm like, <laughs> I want, I want, I want space probes that give me results when I'm alive. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for here. And 2038 is not a good date for me. I mean, maybe I'll be around then. I sure hope so, but it's not a good... Can we can we bring up the timetable a little bit? Um, anyway, Comet Astrobiology Exploration Sample Return, Caesar, um, is one. And then the other one, I, I've given it away already, is the one that I like better because it's so cool. It's called Dragonfly. And here's my elevator pitch, Stephen. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's send a drone to fly around on Titan. Sold. <laughs> Give okay, this man his money. Done. 
done. Seriously, that is what Dragonfly is. There are some amazing videos that the Dragonfly team put together with like proof of concept of this. We have our our quadcopter technology, our drone technology has advanced so much. And the funny thing about Titan is that Titan is uh, is a, a moon with an atmosphere. It's one of the uh, other places in the solar system. I, I guess it's the only other thick atmosphere with a rocky uh, ground uh, that isn't well. It's like Earth, Venus <laughs> for thick atmosphere. Like it is a it is in the a short number, and it's got. Um, chemistry that is not earth-like because the temperatures are much colder but is earth analogous because there are rocks the rocks are made of water there is liquid the liquid is methane but it's still there are lakes and shores and and rocks on the shores even though the chemistry is different so dragonfly isn't gonna like buzz around and 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 just stay in the air or anything it's gonna spend most of its time on the ground at titan if it gets if if it gets there um but it will be able to, rather than being a rover, it's going to fly around so it can go to different locations and and then land and do science and then take off again and go somewhere else. And it's basically an uh, autonomous drone on another planet or moon in this case, which is super awesome and such a cool idea. So Dragonfly is the other option here. Uh, gets us much more about Titan. Titan, one of the only other bodies in the solar system that we've actually landed a probe on other than venus mars and the moon right this is mm-hmm. this is it so good times good times at titan with a with the dragonfly so those two they get they get four million dollars too to flesh out their ideas and again 2025 is kind of the deadline um the you want to see a drone on titan right oh yeah and and yeah. you can you can totally see why it would be so it's sort of like the next step past just a rover. Cause like you said, you can get up and go somewhere else without the dangers and the time and the fuel needed to drive there. You know, when you look at, at the surface of Mars and the, the percentage of that, that we have seen with our rovers, you know, we know the little area they're in, but as far as overall mileage, it's really not that much when you look at the entire surface and something like this, yes, they're not going to be able to cover all of all of Titan's surface with this program, but they, they, with strategic planning, they could see a bunch of different types of things uh, faster and potentially easier than if you have to drive around to them. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about this, this program. It, it seems out of all, out of all of these potential missions, this was one that sort of jumped out at me as a little bit the most, the most sci-fi almost, right? That we're going to send. Right. We're going to send a drone and like, you know, people fly drones into power lines here. But anyways, it's, it's fun, drone, but, but just but like, just like how a... the, the Mars rovers aren't radio controlled cars. Like how many of right. us have wrecked radio controlled cars and they break all, and all, all of that, but the rovers last forever, right? They're lasting years and years and years on the surface of Mars. Well, you, don't better. Take, you know, you don't take it off any sweet jumps, but, uh, but Titan mm-hmm. is, is such an obvious place for us to explore because it, it has so many possibilities right? That there's, there's water there, there's atmosphere, there's, there's heat. Uh, it could be, you know, we talked about it when we talked about Cassini and everything else. Well, it could not, be not, a place not, where there's life. Yeah. Not water, right? There's liquid, <laughs> but it's not water. It's methane. I mean, there's water, but they're rocks, which is yeah, not. Yeah. I mean, so, you've got, you so have water ice. Yeah, and so one of the great things, I mean, we, we focus so much on Europa and Enceladus being where there's liquid water, which is a huge thing, and, and heat and rock, and it's just a it's a, a place where life might be. Um, the fascinating thing about Titan is that it's an Earth-like surface if you look at the the geological processes going on. It's just a different chemistry, and that's the big mystery is... What does that mean? Like, could there be biological processes that happen at much lower temperatures? Now, there are a lot of people who say probably not because the energy, the free energy just isn't there. But the fact is, we've got a temperature gradient and we've got land and lakes and lots. Of, it's a very interesting place. So um, two two other missions did get money. So this is a, this is a case where... If you lost, you still might have gotten a runner's up prize. Sounds to me like the idea here 
is that they liked these missions enough to give them a little more funding to continue investigating. It's sort of like, we like what you're doing. We don't think you're ready to go, but we want you to keep, you know, keep some part of your team or your whole team together and work on this more for technical development. Sort of like, we don't think... I think the implication is we don't think you're technically ready yet, but uh, here's some money to get more ready. And there are two of those. One of them is, um, and these don't have as clever a, uh, uh, a names, but the Enceladus Life Signatures and Habitability Mission, the idea there is you send a probe. This is what we talked about, about Cassini. Cassini flew through the, the water plumes uh, put out by the Saturn's moon Enceladus. Uh, liquid water shot in space, but Cassini's uh, sensors were not designed for sampling those pro those uh, those plumes because it discovered them. Like we didn't know they were there until it flew through them. So Enceladus life signatures and habitability would be a probe that would be designed to fly through the plumes and analyze the water coming off of Enceladus. So they got some money. And then the other one is is called uh, called VICI, which is Venus in Situ Composition Investigations, another acronym, backronym thing. Um, but it would drop uh, two different landers on Venus. Um, interesting Venus angle here. People who love Venus are bummed out by this decision because it's the second time in a row where multiple Venus missions have made the finals or the semifinals or whatever and weren't selected. Um, And uh, there's a lot of feeling that one of the reasons NASA doesn't want to put money into a a Venus lander is because a Venus lander can last, will only last for a few minutes at the surface of Venus and then it will die. And you get, you know, days or months or years of data in some of these other places, even though Venus is really close (laughs) and is really interesting. NASA has not really put any effort into you know, much Venus exploration. Um, and I know Emily Lactawalla, who was on the show, we should have her back sometime because uh, we keep talking about the last time we talked to her, which was more than a year ago now. Um, she she started out as a Venus. Venus was her specialty before she became a generalist at the Planetary Society. And uh, she was definitely, you know, feeling the frustration of Venus fans that NASA's one again, kind of, once again, kind of shutting out Venus. Yeah, I wish I wish we would do more there, but at the same time, I mean, I understand why the decisions are what they are, but, um, you know, I think that, that there's obviously plenty of opportunity for discovery and it's been a long time since we've been there. And yeah, obviously, I mean, and this team is proving it right. That we have technology now that is more capable than ever of surviving the surface. Right. Um, so I think that's which, part of what's going on here with NASA kind of shining on Venus is, um, I was pointed to a story about research being done at NASA, NASA's uh, Glenn Center in Cleveland, Ohio, where they are building computer chips using different elements than and uh, elements and molecules, different construction than the silicon chips that we use in our computers. And what it lets them do is create computer chips that function at the high temperatures that you'd find on Venus. And they're really slow and really limited. Like what they said is it's more power than the computer on the Apollo landers, but it's like, it's not a modern computer. It is, it is like you can build a modern computer and it will melt on Venus, or you can build a 1970s computer space probe computer that will function on Venus and that's what they're working on. They're working on building computer chips using this much more resilient chemistry that allows them to survive on Venus. Because if you can do that, then a Venus probe becomes much more interesting because it's more resilient to the heat. So it may be that what's going on here is NASA is is feeling like Venus exploration is going to get more possible soon and so what they don't want to do is fund a lander that is kind of disposable and dies almost immediately if they feel like in five or ten more years there's going to be one that can actually last longer. I don't know right. how long that is, but longer. Um, I do. We talked about it on the show, and Emily Lactawalla mentioned it on Twitter after this all came out, too, which is what really frustrates me is that there's so much science to be done in Venus, you could do it with an orbiter, but in the spirit of Dragonfly, where they, they they are building a drone to go to Titan, like, why is there not more momentum toward putting a 
blimp in the atmosphere of Venus because we know that although it's brutal down on the surface, there are levels where it's roughly one Earth atmosphere and right. 120 degrees, and there's some sulfuric acid rain that you're going to have to to shield from. But like, we could put an airship and have it just kind of float around and and analyze the atmosphere and the surface of Venus from that vantage point. That would be not only really cool and different, sort of like Dragonfly, but it would get us... That's something we could do without just melting a probe on the surface of Venus. So, I don't know. Uh, I, I share their frustration in a way, because I know we can't live on Venus. Venus is a a dead world in that way, but it's also the closest analog to the Earth in a lot of ways. Understanding the runaway greenhouse effect on Venus is maybe important in terms of understanding planetary and environmental science a little bit better. Um, and, and there's so little we know about Venus. We don't know about Venus quakes, let's say, because we can't land something and keep it down there for some amount of time. What's the, what's the, uh, what's the structure of Venus and how it's put together? We don't know a lot. So hopefully at least it's a good sign that the, that the Vici mission got some funding and that the news out of NASA Glenn is that there's more, um, work being done on robust uh, computer technologies that might actually let us send a probe and have it last for a while on the surface. But still, um, definitely noticed a lot of frustration from the Venus people who keep be- you know beating their head against the wall here uh, without a result. Yeah. And I mean, just for a little context to the landers that have been to Venus, uh, the Soviets had a successful string of them in the 80s. I think the longest one lasted on the surface was like 67 minutes or something. I mean, it's a lot of a lot of pressure and a lot of heat. And so, yeah, if they can build technology to withstand that longer, then these things become more valuable. Yeah, yeah. And I get that. I get that aspect of it. Although, again, I would say you could do an orbiter. You could yep. put a blimp in, in the atmosphere, and neither of those seems to be going along either. So, I don't know. But anyway, it's exciting because... This is, um, you know, for all of our talk about this lull that we're having in terms of planetary science at NASA right now, where there's not a lot other than some existing stuff, there's not a lot that's going out there. Um, th- this at least suggests that we might get um, one or two of these things um, up and running. Uh, they've got a year. These two teams have a year to flesh these things out. And then um, at that point, you know, 2019, basically, they're going to kick it into gear with the idea that they've got six years to get their probe launched, which is exciting. So uh, we want to talk a little bit about some some space media you and I have both enjoyed over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but before we get to that, Jason, do you want to tell us about our sponsor this week? Yeah, this episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. It's got space in the name, so of course they would be here on Liftoff. Use the code LIFTOFF at checkout and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. You make your next move with Squarespace, Squarespace, which lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and much more. If you want to create an online store, a portfolio, a blog, a podcast, whatever you can think of on the internet, you can make it with Squarespace. It's an all-in-one platform that lets you do whatever comes to mind. There's nothing to install. There's no server for you to maintain, no software patches to worry about to protect you from hackers, no upgrades needed, none of that stuff. Squarespace takes all of that stuff. You don't have to worry about it. And they've got award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. So it's not just, uh, I need to go shop for a domain name and then I need to set up a web host. You can do it all at Squarespace. They do it all together. And all of those award-winning templates that they have are beautifully designed to let you show off your great ideas. You don't need to be a web designer to make a beautiful website and host it at Squarespace. Plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up, use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for this show. Thank you to Squarespace for supporting LIFTOFF. Space! Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. So I recently read Scott Kelly's uh, newish book now called uh, Endurance. I read it on my fancy new Kindle. Jason and I are both Kindle fans. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so this is uh, Scott Kelly's book. Scott Kelly, of course, I'm sure everyone listening knows, spent uh, just shy of a year on the International Space Station. And the idea of that study was to look at how that time in space changes him uh, over the rest of his lifetime in comparison to his twin brother, 
who is also an astronaut, a retired astronaut, but stayed on Earth for this mission. They took parallel testing. Uh, you know, one brother would do blood draw in uh, at the space station. The other would do the blood draw on the ground. Um, and they are they are both in this study uh, for the the rest of their lives. It's really a groundbreaking look at what space does to us over longer periods of time, which is going to obviously be huge when we talk about going to Mars one day. So the book, um, Kelly does a really good job, I think, of telling that story of the year in space. There's lots of technical details about life aboard the space station. Um, there's a sort of a repeating um, a bad guy in the book in the form of one of the oxygen scrubbers ab- aboard the space station that basically Scott Kelly has to take apart and rebuild every six weeks. And it's sort of his nemesis at times, which is pretty funny the way he talks about it. But he goes back and forth between that story and uh, the story of his life growing up with a twin brother who was very different than he was. Uh, Scott, uh, in his own words, says, you know, he, he was not a very good student. He was kind of a bad kid. And then he sort of discovered that he wanted to be a test pilot. He wanted to be in the space program. He um, sort of then buckled down much later in his academic career to kind of get his grades in order and be able to enlist and serve in the armed services and then move over into the astronaut corps. So he kind of goes back and forth between those sort of two storylines in the book and uh, I've got to say, I really enjoyed it. You know, I followed the the year in space mission closely, like I'm sure many of our listeners did. And so some of that, you know, a lot of that I already knew, but uh, to hear it from his own words, and, and I've read plenty of stuff, both fiction and nonfiction about life in space, but I think he, did, I think Kelly did a really good job at describing just like what everyday life, all these little things that we do sort of without even thinking how all of that is different in a low gravity environment. And it, it's, it's funny. It's sweet in places when he's talking about his family. And, um, I really enjoyed it. That's nice. Um, I, I have read a few astronaut memoirs and they're actually kind of, they're really interesting. They can be very interesting people. We think of astronauts sometimes as being kind of locked down publicly. Um, yeah. and maybe less so behind the scenes, but they, they definitely seem to let it all out in their memoirs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jason, you watched um, Mission Control, which is over yeah, on Yeah, Mission Netflix Control, right the now, Unsung Heroes of Apollo, which is a documentary about the Apollo Mission Control in um, in Houston. And, uh, of course, they we mentioned the uh, the Kickstarter to help them... Um, them basically take care of it and renovate it as a you know basically for the public to come in and see but also as a historic place um and it's all about the people who worked in mission control so it's you know it is another apollo tv show apollo documentary um what's different about this one is that they try to look at it through the lens of the people sitting in the chairs it's basically men in white short-sleeved shirts who sat in those chairs in houston and uh yeah it was good i liked it a lot um it is on netflix now um it's always fun to walk through the apollo missions and that's why we're doing it ourselves right because it is it is fun to break break it down you know what's going to happen if you haven't if you've seen some of these before if you've seen from the earth to the moon if you've seen when we uh when we left earth there are a bunch of different apollo things fictional and non-fictional that, that you can walk through but it's still it's fun there were details about apollo 11 that i hadn't heard before um famously as they're making their descent to the surface in Apollo 11, there's a computer alarm that goes off and there's a question of like, do we need to abort? And then they say, no, it's okay. And then later that comes on again and they say, just ignore it. And then they land and everything's fine. In in this documentary, they talk about, it's, it's really good. And I hadn't heard it before of how they got to the, that point, which is doing all of their testing, all of their simulations of the landing and trying to, bring up scenarios so that everybody had to figure out how to deal with them and make new rules about it. And um, one of those simulations, Mm. there was a computer error. And it wasn't the same error that Armstrong and Aldrin saw in their descent, but there was a computer error. And in the simulation, they aborted. And in the post-game analysis, 
um, somebody, I want to think it was, uh, it was uh, Gene Kranz, although it might have been Chris Kraft, um, came into the room and basically said, all right, so you aborted. You need two flags to abort, basically. Number one was a computer alarm sounded. What was your second? And everybody looks around and they're like, uh. And that was the reminder, basically, like, just seeing an alarm is not enough to abort the mission. And that's mm. that was a su- super important learning exercise for all of them because, of course, if they had not thought about that and they had seen the computer alarm on the way down in Apollo 11, they might have aborted the mission right then and come back up. So they learned that lesson. And then the other thing that came out of it is we should probably have a list of the computer alarms, what they mean, and whether that means that the mission should be aborted or not. And they they got to computer, they went to MIT, they talked to their computer scientists, and they built a document that listed all of the alarms. So then you get to that point where Apollo 11 is descending and the alarms go off. And now they now they know what to do. So that, that was it's a there's a really nice story in there and it's like the guy. That's the other thing having watched Apollo 13 and dramatizations of Apollo 11, it is a, a lot of fun in all of these scenarios to see the people and in many cases, you know, interviews today with those people talking about what was going on. So instead of it being like, oh, here's Clint Howard playing Cy Liebergott in Apollo 13, it's Cy Liebergott talking about what the issues were with Apollo 13. And likewise, the guy who was involved with the, um, the, the computer alarms in Apollo 11. So, um, and, uh, and Gene Kranz is in it, and Chris Kraft is in it. Um, so good documentary. Um, there's a lot of, it, it sort of ends with Apollo 13, which is, you know, it is that their finest hour in, in Mission Control, but they talk about the, that. And then the only other thing that I walked away from, there is a devastating scene in the, in the documentary um, where they talk about the personal toll on the, the men in the control room um, and mm. how they ended up not just like during missions, but in the prep for missions and not just during an emergencies like Apollo 13, but all the time, the cost on their families how they were, it actually reminded me of what I hear about a lot of people in Silicon Valley who like, you work at Apple and you never go home and you never see your family. And um, and that, that yeah. from the perspective of 40 or 50 years later, these guys look back on that and they know that they were part of this incredibly important moment in human history. And at the same time, they very clearly have regret, some of them serious regret about the fact that it took, you know, they sacrificed their personal lives in order to do it. And um, it, yeah, there's a, there's a heart stopping moment where one of the guys basically says, if I had to do it all over again and I was waiting for that gung ho kind of like I would do it. And he's like, I would never have done it. It's like, wow. Like you were involved in this most wow. important endeavor in human history. And it was, uh, no, it was a mistake because of the cost of it. And so, yeah. So you get some personal stuff like that too. It's good. It's good. I recommend it. If you're a Netflix subscriber, uh, check it out. Mission control, the unsung heroes of Apollo. Cool. I will. Uh, I will check that out. Lots of great British media clips because it's actually made by, made in the UK. Oh, nice! And uh, actually, Sarah Curtis, who is uh, who I uh, from, who is uh, on a bunch of science stuff in the UK, and who was one of my eight roommates at the last shuttle launch. She's th- she's at, like at the top of the thank yous at the end credits. But there's a lot of fun stuff. James Burke, who went on to be uh, do a bunch of great like uh, in the US, we know him as like a PBS documentary since like the TV show Connections, which is one of my favorite sort of science and society shows as a kid. Um, he was the BBC's correspondent for a lot of the Apollo stuff. So there's a lot of great file footage that's not just the usual Jules Bergman, Walter Cronkite stuff, but some BBC stuff is in this documentary too. And that was just really fun to see the see James Burke in in Florida or at a desk in, in, uh, in London uh, talking about space stuff too, because that's not the usual file footage that we get from media coverage of the event. So that was also fun. All right, that brings us to yeah. to Apollo. Finally, we're we are continuing our series on NASA's crewed space programs. Um, today, we're going to talk about uncrewed test missions and the flight hardware to sort of set the stage for the missions themselves. Yeah, while many of the mission pieces had been practiced on Gemini, Gemini was, as we said in the last few episodes, the 
the test bed for Apollo. Um, the hardware that you need to go to the moon was not something that had been flown before. It was very different. We should probably talk about, I mentioned it earlier, the Saturn V, the rocket NASA developed for the job of sending people to the moon. To this date, 2018, it remains the tallest, heaviest, and most powerful rocket ever brought to operational status and holds the record for heaviest payload launched and largest payload capacity to low Earth orbit. It is a big rocket. A total of 15 flight-capable vehicles were built. Only 13 were flown, uh, all without accidents. Saturn V has a perfect track record. In addition to, uh, there were three... uh, Saturn V is built for ground testing purposes, things on the pad, etc. A total of 24 astronauts were launched to the moon, three of them twice, in just four years, spanning from December 1968 through December 1972. So with the Apollo spacecraft on top, the Saturn V stood 363 feet, that is 111 meters tall. Ooh. And without fins, it was 33 feet 10 meters in diameter. Fully fueled, the Saturn V weighed 6.5 million pounds, that is nearly 3,000 metric tons, and had a low Earth orbit payload capacity originally estimated at 261,000 pounds, 118,000 kilograms, but was designed to send at least 90,000 pounds, I love all those metric conversions, Stephen, 41,000 kilograms to the moon. So to the moon, you couldn't send as much because you got to go farther, but still, it's a lot of stuff you can carry to the moon. Yeah, the if you've ever seen the Saturn V in person, it is mind-boggling. They've got one at Kennedy and it 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 makes you feel tiny. It's the length of a football field yeah. for those of us Americans. Um it like literally it is it is the length of a football field. It's um it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. I think there's one is there one in Houston too or or maybe um, in uh, Huntsville. I'm not sure. But there there are a couple places where you can see a Saturn V full-sized. And it's just mind-boggling. That's why, by the way, the vehicle assembly building at Kennedy Space Center is so tall. Mm-hmm. Is that the Saturn V was so huge that it was not cranked up like the Falcon Heavy. It was all put together vertically and that like the space shuttle and then rolled out to the pad from the and the vab is that size because that's the size it needed to be for the saturn 5 it's huge it really is the saturn 5 consisted of three stages uh the s1c first stage the s2 second stage and the s4b third stage Various versions of these, you notice they've got numbers in their names, various versions of these different stages were mated together for various uncrewed tests. We're going to talk about some of them. There were a lot of tests for this thing. Yeah. Uh, We're not going to get into all of them. Uh, But the stages are all a little bit different. So the S1C burned liquid oxygen uh, in its five F1 motors. The center engine was held in a fixed position while the four outer Engines could be hydraulically turned to help steer the rocket, so that center one was fixed. The other four could sort of gimbal around. It was built by Boeing in New Orleans, actually the same facility where the space shuttle external tank would later be built by Lockheed Hmm. Martin. So uh, reusing that space, they'd build it, and then they would put on a barge and take it to Florida. Yeah, ship ship it around. Um, using liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, the S2 second stage had five Rocket 9 J2 engines in a similar arrangement to the S1C, also using those outer engines for control. It was built by North American Aviation uh, in California. Yay! Seal Beach, California. And the S4B upper stage was built by the Douglas Aircraft Company Um Later, McDonnell Douglas. Later, boy, a lot of consolidation in aerospace, let me yeah, tell you. Uh, but been. back then, it was Douglas and Huntington Beach, California. So those stages were uh, from California. And I don't know, where they were they put through the Panama Canal? Were they shipped on a train? I don't know that. But they were probably probably too big. It probably had to go yeah. through the Panama Canal. Yep, they're by barge. Yeah, so uh, one J2 engine and the same fuel as the S2. So they're kind of buddies. We shouldn't forget the IBM-built Saturn V instrument unit. It rode atop the third stage but below the Apollo flight hardware itself. Um, if, you, if you see the Saturn V at Kennedy, it's, it's on its side, and the stages are separated a little bit, so you can kind of see into them, and the instrument unit is, is out on its own. This computer 
controlled the operations of the rocket from just before liftoff until the S-4B uh, finished its job. It included guidance and telemetry systems for the rocket itself. And like we said, um, these were all built different places. The lower two stages made it to Kennedy by barge because they were so large and then stacked in the vehicle assembly building atop the mobile launcher platform. So that platform that most people are uh, familiar with from the shuttle program with the big tracks that very slowly yeah. take the vehicle from the VAB to the launch pad. That actually started here because the Saturn V, like you said, it's too big to build horizontally and then lift up. You have to build it. You have to assemble it vertically and then roll it into place. Yeah, exactly right. And it's uh, this is... Um, we'll talk more about this in a future show, but I just was reading about uh, uh, Werner von Braun and um, the rocket scientist from Germany who came to the U.S. and, and really spearheaded the rocket program that led to the Saturn V, and the Saturn V was his baby in a lot of ways. Um, we we joke like at the top of this show about you don't have to be a rocket scientist, and like I thought about it while I was reading that book that rocket scientist is a thing, like. Rockets are not just like tubes that you put gasoline or liquid oxygen or whatever into and then press a button and they just and then they they fly like they're incredibly complicated because if you have different pressures, you get like waves that uh, cause the rocket engines to pulsate, which is not good. Um, So to the and the more powerful the rockets get, the more complicated it gets. So I think it's interesting when you talk about the Saturn V, this is a stack of rockets. (laughs) right multiple stages so it's a stack of rockets and then there's a computer and this is the 60s a computer that had to be built by ibm to control it all so this is incredibly complex machinery in order to um to have this thing be uh so powerful and so stable as to as to launch it's a beast it is huge okay so what's on top of it it's the apollo mission hardware um and for a lunar mission this is way more complex than Mercury or Gemini. There are three modules, the command module, the service module, and the lunar module. Command module is the three-person capsule that includes primary guidance, navigation, and control systems. That's where the heat shield lives. That's where the parachutes live. It's 10 feet tall and 12 feet across at the base with two hatches, one on the side for crew entry and exit on Earth, and one in the nose to transfer into the lunar module once it's attached in space, which is something that you may, depending on your knowledge of Apollo, you may not realize that the, um, like, like your Ikea furniture, um, a, <laughs> you build it an Apollo mission, yeah, an Apollo mission does not ship into Earth uh, space fully assembled. Some assembly required. A little bit. Just below the command module is the service module. And it's a cylindrical structure, 24 feet long, 13 feet in diameter. It's basically a soup can. looks like a soup can yep. in space. This is an unpressurized module. This module was not entered by the crew. Its job um, was to hold various oxygen and fuel storage for its own single motor, but also to support the other two Modules. It was divided into six pie-shaped sectors, if you go around from the center, and it was used um, to place the Apollo spacecraft into and out of lunar orbit. So it had a single motor on the back called the Service Propulsion System. Uh, and like the command module, it also included a set of reaction control system thrusters so they could help use this to adjust things like pitch, roll, and yaw in flight. But this is an uncrewed module. It's there to basically store fuel and oxygen and and other support systems for the other two sections. Yeah, it's the gas tank and the big engine to to fire to get you in uh in, into lunar orbit instead of just uh, uh going around and coming back. Um so yeah, important important part. Okay. To get to the moon and back, all you need Command module, service module, those are stuck together. You got it. You got your you got your gas tank, you got your big engine, that's great. But if you want to get down on on the ground on the moon, you also need the lunar module, which although it and they changed it uh, later to call it the lunar exploration module because everybody already called it the LEM. Mm-hmm. 
and there was no E. So they, they, they backronymed out of it, but uh, it's the LEM. And in a lot of ways, the LEM is a true spacecraft. It is incapable of doing anything but being in space or on the moon. Um, structurally and aerodynamically, you know, you would not bring it into Earth atmosphere. It's got little spindly legs, um, so it was not meant for one Earth gravity. It's got, uh, I believe, they, it's like um, the skin of it is like aluminum foil um, thickness. It's um, because it doesn't need, there's no pressure in space, so it doesn't need like big armored shielding or anything like that, and they wanted to keep it as light as possible. Um, it's got two stages. It's got the, uh, so again, modular, everything in Apollo is modular. So even the limb can be split in two. There's the ascent stage and the descent stage. So at launch, um, it's housed below the surface module in a section just above the upper stage of the Saturn V. And this is the sum assembly required part. Once in space, the astronauts take the combined command and service modules, separate, spin around, move their nose up to the limb and capture it, and then pull it out of the housing. And that's how they go to the moon. But that's the your, that's your sum assembly required. Is that at launch the lem is not attached in, to the the uh, the capsule, and I think that's for safety reasons. I think that's so that they can eject the capsule off if there's an emergency, and uh, save the astronauts. Yep. So if you had a a lem above you, you couldn't do that. But what it does mean is that in space there is a space. And remember, in 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 uh, in Gemini they were practicing. With the, the, the stupid Agena right, that kept breaking. <laughs> no, don't say that and word. This is one. This is one of the reasons is because Apollo for Apollo to work and to get on to the surface of the moon, you had to do a, a rendezvous basically because you had to yeah. spin your spacecraft around and then attach it to the limb and then pull it out. And then of course there would be more rendezvous in lunar orbit, but the first one was before you even left for the moon, just to get your whole stack of modules um, connected. Uh, so yeah, so. Y- once you were in lunar orbit, uh, the limb would separate with true two crew members inside and descend down to the lunar surface. They'd fly in parallel to the surface, then turn and land on the limb's spidery legs. I mean, if you look at pictures of the limb, <laughs> the thing looks hilarious, right? It is it is yeah. so so custom built for what it does. It does it can't it can't do anything else, right? Um, sits down on its little spidery legs. You uh, open the door, you go do some moon stuff, drive around, mm-hmm. hit golf balls. As you do. Uh, as you do. Plant a flag, make history, climb back yeah, in. Bring, pick up some rocks. Lots sure. of rocks. Uh, you climb back in, and basically the limb would then separate into two. And the smaller uh, ascent stage would then rendezvous with the command service module, which was in lunar orbit, leaving the base and the spidery legs behind. That, yeah, you don't need those. Yeah, you don't need them. Um, that all sounds really complicated, but it totally worked. The 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 brilliance in the engineering in this in this system uh, really astounds me. Fifty years later, reading about it and preparing for this and knowing what's coming in something like um, Apollo thirteen, where they're using all these systems in terrible ways they weren't designed for. This was a proved to be a very robust, trustworthy system. Yeah, this is a. There was a huge amount of debate about how exactly you would build uh, a, 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 a moon landing mission. Mm-hmm. And there was a small group of people who um, believed in something that they called LOR, which is Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. And it seemed ridiculous. Like you said, it seems very complicated. P- people were more in favor of something called Direct Ascent which basically meant that you would um, you would take off from the moon and just come back, mm-hmm. and um, or there was also Earth orbit rendezvous, so you launch two pieces um, separately into space on Saturn rockets, and then move them together. And what ended up winning out is this LOR, the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, which we know of now, but. Um, if you think about it, it seems complicated, but is it is also maybe the most ruthlessly efficient, and I think that's why it got chosen, is that you only bring the pieces you need to the next stage, and you leave all the other pieces behind. And there's some added complexity for sure, but 
that is something uh and 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 to their credit that this one out this idea that was not popular convinced everybody and there's a story about how um i think Werner von braun um was against it for a very long time and they expected there to be this whole huge dust up about it and there was a, a famously apparently a meeting where they talked about lor and von braun said yeah that's the right thing lor yeah. is that that's what we should do and, which was and everybody's like whoa because they had heard him be very skeptical of it but he was a very smart guy and he saw the evidence and a lot of other people at nasa were the same way and said no this is the way to do it so it's super you know complicated in some ways but it is also efficient in a lot of other ways which made it um made it more possible so we leave our little so on the on the moon surface are um little spindly legs from four right four uh lunar modules so yeah uh, you see some of this debate show up in early Apollo hardware. So you, sometimes you'll see when you're reading about these test flights, like block one or block two, some of that comes from these debates that some Apollo hardware was designed before this plane was fully fleshed out. So this was this was something that was going on later in the process than you might think. Yeah, exactly right. So um, so then twenty test launches and flights. <laughs> were used. So this this thing was severely tested in ways that maybe some of the other earlier stuff was not as severely tested because they knew where they were working for here. And it was happening fast. Apollo test flights started in 61 um, through 66. Um, a lot of those early flights were pieces of the Saturn V. So you could argue that they weren't really Apollo test flights as much as Saturn V rocket yeah. development flights. Totally. Uh, and uh, there's a good one here. Stephen, I know it's one of your favorites. SA-2 in which dummy upper stages released 22,900 gallons of water into the upper atmosphere to investigate effects on radio transmission and changes in local weather conditions. What if we sent a water balloon, a really big water balloon, into the atmosphere? SA-2 literally made it rain, Jason. What more mm. could you ask for of a test mission? Great, yeah. And and that, I, I, who was the per- who was like, yeah, you know, we got it. We got upper stages. Let's uh, fill them full of water and see what happens. Hey, boy, run a garden hose over here. Come on, <laughs> fill it up. By 1964, the transition was taking place to not t- just testing the Saturn V, but testing boilerplate models of the Apollo hardware. Boilerplate means that the fittings and like the the physicality of it's right and the weight is correct, but it's it's basically like a, a dummy unit, right? There's no electronics. There's nothing there of any intelligence. It is a metal box, but uh, the it's to test fittings and weight and all that stuff. Um, flight AS-102 in September of 1964 carried the first programmable in-flight computer on the Saturn one vehicle. So again, testing these different Saturn stages, testing the electronics, testing that IBM system to make sure it all worked. So then comes 1966 and there were a lot of big gains then on AS 201, the Saturn one B stage launched the Apollo CSM into a suborbital flight. So, you know, up and right back down, um, ended in a splashdown at the Atlantic ocean, which demonstrated the heat shield on the command module and a few months later, NASA successfully verified the restartable S4B stage designed for Saturn V because, yes, they, they had to, it's pieces, it's all putting the pieces. And they pushed the command and service module into a longer orbit before a Pacific splashdown. So, you know, baby steps here in 1966. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, you said there's 20 of them. All of these missions and tests, like this stuff gets forgetten, forgotten by history, unfortunately. But they're important in verifying the Apollo hardware and its systems. Um, we're going to get into Apollo 4, 5, and 6 next time. Three test flights that picked up designated mission names after the Apollo 1 disaster, uh, which we're also going to talk about. But I think it's clear, you know, going before we did this, I think it was easy for me to think about, okay, we did Mercury, and we did Gemini, and then we did Apollo, and then maybe there's a little overlap at the beginning and the end, but they were working on what would become the Saturn V for almost a decade. You know, they didn't, they, we didn't go to the moon until 1969. They were testing that, the beginning parts of that rocket way back in, uh, in 61. This stuff was all going on at the same time. If you, if you overlay it all on a calendar, it's all very messy because all this stuff's happening yeah. at once. 
They knew that they needed a powerful rocket to go to the moon, but they also knew they needed to test, you know, space flight systems for astronauts. And so you got this parallel development where the rocket people were working on this rocket tech that they knew they were going to need to go to the moon. And then meanwhile, the astronaut group, which is what we focus on, honestly, as human beings, as we focus on the astronauts themselves, they were going through... Um, you know, Gemini, and then and then eventually on to Apollo. Um, and the, that was all happening in parallel because they knew they would join up down the road, which which we will uh, basically we will start talking about uh, next time. Yeah. Until then, if you want to find show notes for stuff we talked about this week, you can do so on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 63 there in the sidebar there are a bunch of fun links you can find us on tumblr where jason and i post uh stories and videos uh in the fortnights between our episodes you can also uh, find an email contact link there and of course you can find us on twitter the show is at liftoff podcast you can find jason there j-s-n-e-double-l you can find me there as i-s-m-h until our next fortnight jason say goodbye bye everybody adios (laughs) 